0: Well, good morning, Restoration Church. Last Sunday afternoon, my youngest son Jordan got married to a lovely young lady named Rachel. And this completes our family. All three of our sons and our daughter are now married each to a godly mate. You can't get anything better than that. Well, well, maybe a couple more grandkids, but that's good. What my family doesn't know is that Jan and I are now going to put our house up for sale, we're going to move in with our family. We'll let them know when we get to the first door. It's kind of a rotation thing, three months at a time, for 20 years. And we're going to start with Jordan (laughs) and his bride. No, 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 how terrible that would be. We love him. That's great. We wouldn't do that unless we had him. Okay. Now, putting that aside, in the next few minutes, you're going to think we're camping because this message is intense. (laughs) And rightly so, because this message is based on, perhaps, the most agonizing passage in all of Scripture. It's our Lord's Prayer in Gethsemane. And the passage comes from Mark, chapter 14, uh, verses 27 through 52. Actually, we'll back up and we'll catch verse 26 on the way. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn there. Matthew 14, verse 26, and if you don't have a Bible, it'd be great if you, you had one in your hands. I know we're going to have it on the screen, but it's, the best thing is to have the Bible in hand, and from there, it goes into your heart. So if you would like a Bible, just hold up your hand, we have an usher with Bibles ready to give you one. And then you can do the work yourself moving through God's Word. Now, in verses 26 through 31, uh, we have a, kind of a summary statement. That Jesus gives to his disciples. uh, Letting them know what's going to happen. So if you'll follow silently with me as I read beginning with verse 26. Mark 14 verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all may fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Then he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Isn't it amazing sometimes how believers can misread their circumstance and misjudge their character? Now, I'm sure these guys had good intentions, and then they were sincere. But we all know that good intentions do not make you strong. And sincerity does not make you right. They had both. And they all failed. In addition to that, from this very passage and from others to support it, we can discern that there are some things wrong with their disciples. Lacking in their character. To begin with, Peter is ignorant. He just doesn't understand the role of suffering and death in God's redemptive plan. He doesn't get it. Jesus said, it is written. But he doesn't understand what is written. And how it is to be uh, interpreted concerning Christ. The first thing that Jesus did when he rose from the dead and appears to his disciples is to correct this glaring lack of understanding. In Luke chapter 24, in one of Christ's post-resurrection appearances to his disciples, he said to them in Luke 24, beginning with verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day, rise from the dead. But Peter was ignorant at that moment that night. He didn't understand. And Peter was overconfident. He had placed too much of an emphasis on his ability. He actually said to Jesus, I can die with you. I'm able to die with you. Let's go. I won't deny you. I'm able to do this. Count on me. But we know the rest of the story because we followed the the passage we know what Paul Harvey would say the rest of the story Peter wasn't able to die with Christ he couldn't even pray with Christ not even for an hour he overestimated his ability just because you can hike to the top of Mount Adams does not mean you can ascend to Mount Everest it's two different things Peter may thought, well, I was able to follow Jesus for three years. What's one more night? But this is Gethsemane. And the next day will be the cross. This is Mount Everest. You are not able to make this climb. But he thought he could. He had a lack of understanding, overconfident, and he was proud. He compared himself to his other disciples, and he separated himself, and he believed he was a cut above. They may fall, but I won't. Now, how could he think of that about himself when he and his disciples were cut from the same bolt of human cloth? What makes him think that he could do what no one else would do? He was proud, and he was stubborn. Stubborn! Not once, but twice he contradicted Jesus. Jesus said, you're all going to fall away. Peter was essentially said, no, I'm not. And then he zeroed in on Peter. You, you are going to deny me me three times. No, I'm not. He dug his heels deeper into the quicksand. I'm not. And I'm not going to change my way. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to accept what you say. I'm going to go headlong into, into Gethsemane. And I'm going to hit the brick wall. And I'm not even going to wear a safety belt. Stubborn. A refusal to accept the truth. And to acknowledge that he needed to change. That's stubborn, and he's motivated by self-will. I will. I will. You know, Peter is the uh, Frank Sinatra of the Rat Pack. After they began, after they finished singing their hymn, he sung his song. I did it my way. The only problem was his way was the wrong way, and so. There's so many reasons why these men were not ready for this, not prepared, and not going to be successful, and why they would fall away. Now, we need to be fair to Peter and to the disciples, and we should ask ourselves the same question. Do you really think you have what it takes to follow Christ? Really? Do you? Successfully, consistently, over time. Well, let's put this to the test. This is just for those of you here this morning who have known and followed Christ for at least five years. Over all those years that you have followed Him, I need you to be honest. Raise your hand if you've ever failed Him. Come on. There it is. Okay, This is what the church is. The church is made up of a congregation of sheep that tend to scatter. We have good intentions. And we are sincere. But there are times when we are not going to be in the will of God. We're going to, in in a sense, we're going to have that falling away. Now, so this leads to the bad news. The bad news for all of us. No one has what it takes to follow Christ. Not one of us. And you might think, "Well, well, that's a bummer, Jim. Let's pack it up and go home now. Why bother to follow Christ if we're going to fail? Because the issue is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our willingness or our ability to follow Christ. It never was. It never will be. Instead, it is is about the willingness and the ability of Christ to lead us. Us. Who tend to fall away. Who tend to scatter. Who tend not to understand. Who tend to be overconfident. Who tend to be proud. Who tend to be uh, stubborn. Who tend to be wrong. And this leads to the, the very, very good news. Yes, it's bad news that we're not able to do this. But Jesus is. The good news for all of us. Jesus has what it takes to lead us. That's the good news. Even in this preamble, in this summary statement, Jesus shared both the bad and the good news. He said, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's bad news. But, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. You see, after he dies... And is raised from the dead. He will resume the place. And the position as the good shepherd. And he will lead them. And he will meet them at Galilee. And begin to regather scattered sheep. That's a good shepherd. Who takes sheep that tends to get lost. That tends to fall away. That tends to be frightened. And he brings them back together again. He restores them. That's a good name for a church. Don't you think? Restoration? Hmm. And He forgives them. He rekindles them. He gives them new hope. Gives them new life. Gives them new strength. Gives them what they never had before. Gives them understanding. Gives them humility. Gives them the the will to follow the will of another. So that when He ascends them to heaven, eventually the sheep become shepherds. The shepherds become evangelists. Evangelists become missionaries. Missionaries become Church planters. Church planters become martyrs. And the martyrs become the examples of the church throughout the ages of men and women who have followed a shepherd who has and knows how to lead them, and you and I. Now with this in mind, we come to Gethsemane. We read in verses 32 through 42. Probably the most agonizing passage ever written. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayers at hand. What is it in that garden that has caused Jesus so much stress, so much grief, to be so troubled in heart? Luke describes it as so intense that he sweat drops of blood. That could mean that the capillaries under his skin, under pressure, dilated and burst, and the blood escaped through the pores in his skin. And if you see that happen to someone, he's in mortal agony. What's going on in that garden that would cause him so much stress to the point of dying right there? Well, let me say, let me tell you, it's it's nothing to do with his disciples or with Peter, or their failure, or Israel, or Rome. It has to do with something that's happening between the Father and the Son. Quite frankly, there is something that's going to happen between the Father and the Son that brings the greatest agony. You see, the next day, the Father kills His Son. I'm a father. The thought of that would destroy me. I would resist it. I would fight that. But the next day, the Father slaughters his son. Is there any possible picture of that to to prepare us for this? In the Old Testament, anything that would foreshadow this this tragic, terrible reality that Jesus is is anguishing over. And in fact, there is. In Genesis chapter 22, it has to do with the father and his son. It's Abraham and Isaac. Isaac was about 13 or 14 years of age, and this is what God said to the father concerning his son. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What are you going to do with your son? You're going to offer up your son as a sacrifice. Now go. Can you imagine what Abraham must have felt? He's a hundred years old. This is his only son, the son he loves. And I'm going to take him. And I am going to kill him. So he did that. He took his son. He went up to the mountain. Prepared the altar. Laid the wood down. Put his son on the altar. And it says, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So this is the analogy. This is the, f- the foreshadowing this. Right up to the moment where the father is about to kill his son and the angel of the Lord says, Stop. This cup will pass from you. You will not have to drink this one. This suffering and death is not for you. But there will come a day when a father will offer up his son and raise that knife, that spear, that hammer, and he will bring that down on his son and kill him. And Jesus also knows why. Why His Father will do that to His only begotten Son? It's because the Father is going to make His Son to be sin. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, For our sake He, God the Father, made Him, the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We don't understand what's happening. But Jesus does. The Father does. The Father is loving. But the Father is righteous and holy. How can God be just and holy and justify the sinner? How can He do that? Well, He does that by sending His only begotten Son to a place where He will kill Him. And he will kill him because at that moment, the father will make the son who knew no sin to be sin. In him are all the sins of the world. And the trade-off is Jesus becomes our sin. And by faith, we become the righteous ones in Christ. It's that imputed righteousness. God credits the righteousness of His Son to the sinner for whom Christ died. And the moment Jesus becomes sin, God then pours out His wrath on the Son. In the Old Testament, there's a description of the cross in Psalm 22. And in Isaiah 53 is the theology of the cross. In Isaiah 53, here's some verses that underscore what's really happening. And what Jesus is anguishing over. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's the falling away. That's the scattering. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. You see, the Father kills the Son because the Son becomes sin. And God pours out His wrath on the Son in a just atonement for that sin. The just penalty is paid to the fullest Every ounce of blood is paid for. And it is the Father who grieves the Son because of this. The agonizing truth of Gethsemane is that this is how God saves you. Now, Gethsemane should put to rest and give an answer to this this accusation that's being leveled, Christians especially uh, in this generation. The accusation is that Christians are narrow minded. We're arrogant. We're intolerant. We're bigoted. Why? Because we make this outrageous claim. We say Jesus is the only way to God. In this pluralistic society with almost 7 billion people are you even suggesting this? Literally? Literally? Yes, it is true, Christianity is the largest religion on earth. Almost two billion people would claim, I'm a Christian. Maybe not evangelical, but they would say, I'm a Christian. But there is another five five billion people who would say, we're not. And they have their religions, And they offer their truth claims. And their ways. Are you suggesting that yours is the one and only way? To God and everyone else is wrong? Well, what do we say in our defense? What do we offer? There's a little little snippet of apologetics here. Well, first, in our defense, Jesus was the one who claimed it. John 14, 6. In that upper room, before he even came to Gethsemane. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So if you have a problem with this exclusivity, this kind of claim, then you take it to the boss, the CEO, the head of the church. He's the one who said it. We're the messengers. We didn't originate that. Christ did. He claimed it. Later, Peter would declare it. Standing before the Sanhedrin... Having been convinced of the resurrection of Christ, He declared to them in Acts 4 verse 12, For there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. What name is that? Is it Krishna? Is it Buddha? Is it Muhammad? No, it is Jesus Christ. No other name. Period. And that won't change. Regardless of your health care. Period. Peter declared it. Paul taught it. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5. He said. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, The man Christ Jesus. One God. There's no other. And there's only one mediator. Between that one God. And all the mankind. Who is that? The man Christ Jesus. That's it. Jesus claimed it, Peter declared it, Paul taught it, and Gethsemane settles it. You see, in the supplication of prayer that Jesus the Son offered up to His Father, He said this, if it is possible, let this cup pass. The cup of suffering and death. If there's another way, then let's do that way. If there's another way that does not require this suffering and death, then that should be the way. And God should know what that way is. And all things are possible with God. Not only would God have sifted through and sorted through every religion and every truth claim and know that this one was the only way, He would also have the power to make that way possible. All things are possible with you. That's what the Son pleaded before the Father. All things are possible with you. So if there's another religion and another truth claim that happens to be the way that doesn't require this, you should know about it, my Father. And because you're all powerful, you should be able to do something about it. And because you are sovereign, you would want to. And yet from Gethsemane, Jesus goes to the cross. So if there was any other way, then the cross would not have been necessary. But there he goes. It's settled. There is no other way. Jesus knew it. This cup, unlike Abraham, is not going to pass. He's going to drink it. Every drop of it. This is the way Now, what is the importance of prayer? In Gethsemane, it's all about prayer. Concerning the Son, it's Christ's supplication to the Father. But what about us? What is this prayer meant to do for us? Well, let me suggest to you it's important first and foremost because it is meant to protect us. You see, when we face crisis, we are tempted. We're tempted to respond to crisis in sinful ways. And Jesus had this in mind concerning His disciples. He said this to His disciples in Mark 14, reading once again, verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. See, when we're threatened, when we're frightened, when we're facing some of life's more difficult choices beyond Choices of toothpaste or commercials or movie trailers to watch. The real stuff. We tend to give in to our feelings and be led by our raw emotions. And when that happens, the consequences are devastating. Case in point, let's read what happened when the crisis hit. Let's continue to read. In Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 43. And immediately while he was still Speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Way to go. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled, and they all left him and fled. Now when you're frightened, you will tend to do one of two things. It's either fight or flight. Right? I mean, when you're really in the corner, you're terrified, you don't know how to get out, and you're led by just raw emotions You'll come out swinging. You'll start fighting. Peter did both of those things. First he fought. He took out the sword and he started wailing. Cut off a servant's ear. What did that accomplish? And then when Christ disarmed him, he had no way to fight. Then he fled in fear. uh, uh, Peter did both of those. Jesus did neither of them. He didn't fight. He didn't flee. He faced the crowd with control and peace and purpose. He interrupted Peter's postal attack, put the sword away, and he repaired the damage that Peter had caused. He healed that servant. And then he gave instructions and enlightenment to the very crowd that came to arrest him. And he went forward, submissive to their arrest, and he went to the cross. You see, he didn't didn't fight. He didn't flee. Why? Because he was not led by fear. He was led by the will of God. Now, how do you get to that point? You see, Peter didn't pray. Jesus did. And when you're facing a crisis, this is what happens. Is you come before God, and you're honest with your emotions. You don't cover it up. Jesus didn't cover it up before his father. He was in anguish. And he told his father that. He worked through those feelings. He laid them openly and forthrightly before His Father. And and He considered the circumstance before Him. And to relate that to God's will. To relate that to God's Word. And He committed Himself to the will of God. If this should pass, fine. You know, sometimes when we come to God and we say, I'm in trouble. I'm frightened. I don't know what to do. I feel like I need to run. Or I feel like I'm going to have to strike out, I don't know who, but I'm going to yell at my wife. I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to yell at the world. Or I'm going to escape it to the bottom of a bottle or the end of a needle. I feel this way. God, help me. That's what prayer is doing for us. It's protecting us so that we do not give into the temptation to be led by our feelings into a situation that we will certainly regret. Peter did not pray, and Peter failed. Jesus succeeded. But as a good shepherd, Jesus would come back to Peter and put him on solid ground again. That's what the importance of prayer is. Now, there's this last little postscript. Two verses. Verses 51 and 52 marks the only one who mentions this. It seems incidental. Like, why is it even in here? It's like a. Oh, by the way, <laughs> here it is, verse fifty-one and fifty-two. And a young man followed them, or followed him. You see, there was somebody else in the garden. Someone else was following them. Who could it be? It wasn't one of the original twelve. It wasn't the enemies with a sword and a club sneaking up to ambush Jesus to get more money than Judas did. Who was this guy? And what happened to him? In <laughs> verse. Uh, 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Who was this midnight streaker? Well, Mark doesn't mention who he is. Of course, he, Mark doesn't mention any names. He didn't even mention Peter as the one who wielded the sword. It's very possible the reason is Mark's the first gospel. This is going out to the world that's freshly working through this. And he doesn't want to name names because they could still get in trouble. Years later, decades later, John writes, he names everybody. He even names the servant. That's Malchus. (laughs) He doesn't spare anybody. Yeah, that's Malchus, that's Peter. But he doesn't name, he doesn't even mention who this guy is. He doesn't even talk about him. Mark does. So who do you think was the one following them? Anybody? It was Mark. <laughs> the author. He remembers. Why? Because he was there. He's the streaker. He's the guy naked as a jaybird. Apparently he got too close. He was there too long. And he got caught in the mix. And he fled like crazy. Even if you have leave your clothes, who cares? I'm out of here. You see, what Mark is saying is, P.S., I was there too. P.S., I also fled. P.S., I also failed. Jesus. And I am writing this gospel to you. You see, the Bible doesn't hide the dirty laundry. In fact, sometimes it takes all the laundry away and exposes us exactly for who we are. That's what Mark was doing. Now, how do we end all this? How do we put this together? First things first. When you feel like you're failing to follow Christ, just remember, it is Christ who leads you. He will never fail you. Second is when you face that crisis, don't throw everything away. Don't fight. Don't flee. Come to God. That's what Jesus did. Come to God. That's what prayer is for. It's for many things, but it's there to protect you. If you're honest with God. And then remember, we're all in this together. Even Mark. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, I do not pretend to know what you were going through at Gethsemane. I have just a human nature that's fallen. But you came into the garden with not one but two natures. The divine nature and the human nature. And in your divine nature, you understood to the infinite degree what was taking place. And in your human nature, you felt it to the very height and depth that any human could experience. Thank you, Jesus, that you determined that you would go forward And that you would drink this cup. You would do it for us. Thank you Jesus. Help us to be reminded. That we can follow you. Because you lead us. And Lord when we are in crisis. When the world gets turned upside down. Oh Father help us. To come to you. Lay our lives out before you. Our feelings before you. And then be led by you. And not by our feelings. And Lord. Thank you that we are all in this together. We are a family. We are cut from the same bolt of human cloth. Adorn us. Adorn us all with your glory and your grace. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.